non ci deve essere più niente, bisogna cominciare subito. Coraggio, al lavoro, buttate giù. Dico bene, autore? Sì, grazie. Arrivederci, ragazzi. Ci vediamo in un prossimo. Lo speriamo. Welcome to Cinema Italia, a podcast dedicated to the world of Italian cinema. Presented by me, John Bleasdale. Once Upon a Time in America, back in 1984, uh, I was 18 years old and I went with my father to this big uh, theater uh, in Gothenburg where I lived at that time. And I was totally unprepared for what I was about to see. I thought it was supposed to be a kind of a gangster story, but what I got to see was kind of the story uh, i don't know the story of my own life i don't i i i identified so much with uh, with uh, the protagonist the main character noodles i was just i was just floored by the experience because it was nothing i have never i had never seen anything like it before and it was not like the godfather it was not like any other film i've ever seen i was kind of flabbergasted about you know also the 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 melancholy it's a very, very dark film. It's maybe still one of the most, you know, darkest movies I've ever seen. And this, there was this betrayal. It was the mystery. It was, you know, the love that couldn't be. All the things that, and the music, of course, by Morricone. And the, the, the visual way of uh, in which Leone makes movies. It just, it, it just knocked me out mm. in, in, in many ways. That's such a, a great description of it. Uh, and I, I'm really interested in the point you make right at the beginning when you said you were expecting a gangster movie. When I watch it, one of the, the things that kind of most surprises me as well is that I'm expecting a Sergio Leone movie. Yes. And it is that, but it is also unlike anything he's done in the past. Yeah, yeah exactly. But, but because maybe this is the first Sergio Leone movie because I loved all of his previous films but and of course you can see he puts in personal like stories from his childhood in uh, f- for example in um, Duck You Sucker when you know when they when 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 the the protagonist is peeing and all those stuff when when the and there's a lot of uh, other st- in his co- in his um, dollar th- trilogy how he and his friends in Trastevere kind of, you know, went around and harassing people. And so he, 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 he did that, but they were very much genre movies taking to Italy and made in his own way. But for me, once upon a time in America is the first film in which he was really, he told his own life. He, it, it's, it's, it's a very personal film to Sergio Leone. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, a lot about himself in it and that's that's the big difference so for me maybe this is the first movie in which leone showed his you know the full potential of what he could do and that is so sad that he died <laughs> so soon after and he didn't get the possibility to make another one because this is really you know this not the an ending point for me for this artist this great director this is the starting point from which he could have reached you know he could have done anything. Yeah what, yeah. what do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. I I was talking to Adrian Martin, who wrote the BFI classics on uh, Once Upon a Time in America, and he talks yeah. about how, you know, this is his last film, so it has this last film feel to it. But at the same time, he didn't know it was his last film. So no, exactly. Was, it is so interesting to see those glimpses that you have of the genre. So, for instance, when the boys get beaten up uh, by by Bugs, Bugsy, the, who yes. has a sort of much, a very sort of generic gangstery name. And the sound effects are completely from Fistful of yes. Dollars when Clint Eastwood gets beaten up. And they're, they're yeah. the same sort of, it's the same sort of scene, you know, the, that's sort of sadistic. There's one in for free, for a few dollars more. There's one in Good, Bad and the Ugly. It's the scene that, that he does with those punches, which sound like cannon sh- 
fire, you know? Yeah, exactly. But it's at the service of a totally different story. It doesn't feel it doesn't feel like it's even necessarily in the same universe. I mean, it's definitely no, in exactly. a Leone-esque universe, but not the generic universe that you, you've got used to. How does this come about? Because it's based on a book, right, Once Upon a Time in America? Yeah, yeah. It's called The Hoods by a, a Jewish uh, gangster who, who is said to have written the book when he was in prison. There's a lot of mythology around him and uh, nobody knows exactly what's true and what's not. But the owner got the advice from a friend, read this book, and then he read the book and he's, he immediately wanted to make a movie of it. And he tried to get the rights to it. And uh, the rights were already taken by another, an American director. I forgot who it was right now. But then I think, was it Cristaldi who at the end managed to buy him the right and serve them to him on, on a silver plate? <laughs> <laughs> but he, he wanted to make this movie for like 20 years. Mm. He tried to finance the movie, uh, but the American producers, they just wanted him to make another um, Western. Mm. So in in order to kind of uh, pay for him, to let him make, if if you do Gakyo Sucker, we will give you the money then to make Once Upon a Time in America. So And, and that's why he said they will never forgive you a, a success. That's, you know, mm. they want you to repeat the same movie all over, all over again. So that was very hard for him. Uh, and I mean, he he had like 20 screenwriters on the project and sacked them all. <laughs> there are different legendary stories about Norman Mailer, you know, coming to Rome, to Rome, sitting in a hotel room, drinking whiskey, trying to write something clever. And uh, Leone just hated it and thought it was stupid. And uh, at the end of the day, he went back to his Italian collaborators who wrote the script. There was a, a story that I think, I remember, is it Christopher Frailing tells of Leone sort of sitting on a terrace bar in Cannes on the Quasette. Arnon Milchen, the great producer, um, sort of spotted him and said, oh, it's Sergio Leone. And he went, ah, oh, yes. And he had the script for Once Upon a Time in America there. And he's like, oh, yeah. I just... Later, the producer said, I didn't realize that he'd been sitting there for years. He'd come he'd, he'd come yeah, yeah, yeah. and sit there and just yeah. see if he could get anyone interested in, in, this, in this film. Yeah, and everybody, everybody uh, tells the same story that he... When he told the story to a producer or an actor, he just kind of scene by scene explained, scene by scene, line by line in the dialogue. So it took like four hours for him to tell the story. And it was already, everything was already there. Angles, uh, close-ups, lines of dialogue, the whole story. And he just spellbound people and he told the story and they just listened and at the la <clears throat> At the end, Arnold Milchen decided to to make the pro, make the movie, and um, yeah, that was fascinating. No, but it's 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 a fascinating film. I mean, when you're young, everything is about friendship, it's about love, it's about becoming someone and identifying with other people. And I I I think that you know the gang noodles gang of this young uh, rugged kids. I was. Growing up in a project myself, I felt like an outsider and I identified with Nules because I, I guess he's the most pitiful, uh, sad protagonist in a, in cinema history, I think. I mean, if if there's a loser, I mean, it's Noodles. He, he loses everything. He loses his love. He loses his best friend. He got conned. He, 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 he lives 35 years in exile thinking that he, you know, killed his best friend. <laughs> And uh, and uh, at the end, he comes back and and um, discovers that nothing is as is like he thought it it was. So I mean, it's it's a really tragic figure, and I think that really uh, appealed to me when I was young, and it still does. But because in a way, noodles loses everything because he is true to himself, and he lives in a world that is changing, and he is he is not made for that new world because it's too cynical and it's too too hard and um, so he has no chance of uh, moving along with with the, with the time so he he remains you know the one he always was but and is that yeah, that's very sad and i just love that 
he he loses his entire youth really as well because he goes into jail a young man and comes out Robert De Niro so uh, you know he's I, I don't know exactly how long that that time period is supposed to be but it's going to be a decade at least isn't it yeah 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 and he loved this girl and she w- wants to become a dancer and and he's a you know he's a he's a bum and he knows it and this this beautiful scene when they before they kiss each other she reads from the bible to him uh, from the what do you call it the songs of songs yeah the song of songs yeah about you know a lover with you know marble legs or whatever with with dirty pants that can stand by themselves and he looks at himself and he knows that he's you know he isn't worthy of her and then max calls from outside and he runs out so in a certain way he chooses his best friend he chooses this this world of being you know a criminal and she knows it so she chooses to not engage in him any longer and that's i mean it's it's heartbreaking scenes all played out with the music of morricone so i mean it was just i just cried and i still that scene always makes me cry even today because it's so powerful it really is absolutely and i i, I think that well i mean just uh, I rewatched it very recently for this for this podcast. So I rewatched it over the weekend. Uh, one thing uh, I would also say is I rewatched the uh, the restored version, which has yes, sev- exactly. several scenes added, and which yeah. which fills in. Unfortunately, the quality of some of those added scenes, in terms of the visual quality, is not up to up to scratch. But the but unlike a lot of sort of reconstructed films, it does add a lot more. Uh, you know, there, there are entire characters who you don't understand who they are in the theatrical cut. I'm thinking of Ava, who is um, Noodles's girlfriend uh, later on in the later on in the film, who is a great actress, and uh, that Noodles, you know, he 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 calls her Deborah all the time, which is says a lot about their relationship, at least at the beginning. But uh, yeah, that scene is horrible. The beginning of the of the film, though, is this amazing sequence of a, a montage, really, with the sound of a phone ringing all the way through it. And yeah. it strikes me as I love uh, Leone's cinema when he is is just almost playing with the audience, with yes. l- like a, a cat with a mouse on a string. He's sort of letting you go so far and then pulling you back and revealing. Yeah, exactly. You think this is the telephone that's ringing? This is yeah. the telephone that's ringing it's another telephone and exactly and, and if you watch that with someone who's never seen the film before they will be utterly confused yeah you know? and annoyed some of them and <laughs> and constantly surprise your audience that's that's the thing and um and he, he he's a very visual storyteller i mean dialogue is is very short and uh, as hitchcock said when the screenplay is written and the dialogue has been added so here is he had all the story and and everything in it and then I mean they brought also in an American Jewish screenwriter Stuart Kaminsky who wrote some of the more most memorable lines uh, more more um, tough lines of dialogue uh, but the story was already there so so we get that that sort of prologue if you like then he goes away and then you have this longer scene scene of childhood uh, which which seems to be it's sort of like a collection of vignettes and i could easily see this as being new york and the the obviously the the cinematography is amazing and the sense of place is amazing and and you know this it's a bit of a lost art these days because of cgi and budgets and yeah, whatnot yes. that you you get this massive street scene um a little yes. bit a little bit similar to godfather part 2 where you yeah, have yeah but the... it's like you're 10 times more people it's action for real, and it's. They say that when uh, when he shot that scene, he he had con- complete control on everything that was in the range of the camera, but he was also in control of things that happened outside of the picture, and he stopped. Uh, he cut a lot of uh, takes because people were not acting outside of the camera the way he wanted to. So, I mean, the perfection was like he wanted everything to be perfect. Also, the stuff that wasn't in the picture, and that's. I mean, that's amazing and, and you can feel it because it's for real it's it's uh it's quite an some amazing shots 
in the, in the movie. And I mean, one of the most iconic shots ever, I think it's when the, the small kids, you know, when they are dressed up in the suits and they, you know, dancing through uh, the streets of New York, they have challenged Bugsy and, uh, and they are just passing by uh, under Manhattan Bridge which is of course also the famous poster of the uh, of the film and then they meet Bugsy and little Dominic got shot uh, gets shot that's i also remember that that was uh, i mean an image that remained within me forever so that, uh, that's 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 amazing yeah yeah him that, that little kid falling is is because he really falls. <laughs> it's really, yeah, yeah, exactly. It looks like it hurts. It doesn't look like he's pretending at all. But it's also the things I the thing I like about the movie is that it has this because I've read Proust and and I love Proust because it has that melancholy and the transitions between the timelines are absolutely fantastic. And you have this already from the beginning, the the sadness of someone who leaves New York, you know, at the beginning of the movie, his friends got, got killed. It's Noodles who has called the police in order to save Max's life because Max wants to do uh, a stupid thing. He wants to rob, you know, the federal bank and he will get you know, killed. So Noodles thinks that if I, if I stop him now, we will get two years of prison and I will go with him and then we will survive and and he has to leave because the mob uh, you know they want to they want to kill him and he leaves and he's gone away for 35 years and he, then he comes back and he meets fat mo and um, he has lived 35 years with the regrets of you know losing everything and there's no money when he leaves he picks up a suitcase he thinks this the million will be there that the that they that they weren't together but that's just old newspapers so it's a mystery. Thirty-five years. Who 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 conned me? What happened? And he comes back after thirty-five years because he, he somebody has called him back. He he's got this letter. It's the you know the best line of dialogue in a movie. <clears throat> if you ask me, and you know of course which one I'm hinting <laughs> at. When Fatmo, his old friend, asks him, you know what what have you been doing all these years? And Noodles answers, I, I've been going to bed early, and that is like thirty-five years of grief in one sentence. And it's, of course, also a ripoff from the first sentence in Proust's fantastic novel. So, I mean, it's... Uh, and it was Medioli, the Italian screenwriter, who came up with that brilliant line of dialogue. It's one I remember from the very first time I saw it and one that when it comes up, it's... And De Niro is so good because he's so, he's so good at playing old at this point that you sort of forget that he's he he would wear heavy shoes and heavy coats and stuff so that he couldn't move he looks old and broken but he still has his dignity and that's that's the amazing thing about noodles because at the end of the day he he remained true to himself and that made him lose everything i i i recognize myself in that sometimes <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not in other aspects no, no. of Noodle's behavior. Because no, we're no, going to exactly. have to get into that as well. So that that story of the of the sort of mystery is really interesting as well. You know, where did the yeah. money go? What happened? Because there's an element of of it where about halfway through the film, you can tell Leone is kind of going you know what happened it's like it's no longer it, the mystery isn't like a, a twist that you get at the end it's no. it's something that dawns from halfway through the movie onto yes. you know you know that the betrayal has been has been the fix was in from the beginning and that's that's interesting because i remember the first time i saw the movie i kept asking myself question what is, what the hell is going on what's happening i wanted to know more i i wasn't sure of, about what i was seeing and uh, i i have been re i have rewatched the film with friends and you know kids and and, what, and all whatever and it's always the enigma remains and that's what keeps you interested and that's i think that one of the reasons i love to see watch the movie all over you know all the time because i really you really still feel the mystery it's still alive and it's also all of those interpretation about the ending and what what what's really going on uh, and uh, maybe maybe we can talk about it later but that's a fascinating part to me too so the whole section of the, because I remember when this was shown on TV, and even when it was shown in the cinema in England for, for the first time, it was split into two parts, and you would watch one in one evening and one in yeah. the other. Usually, it was the the childhood scenes where the 
first half and then the second half was the was the adult scenes those childhood scenes one thing i was sort of hinting at earlier is how they're a series of vignettes and they they sort of strike me that you could take them from new york and put them in rome quite uh, without really missing much in terms of i'm thinking specifically as well of the sort of the relationship with peggy the the vienna sort of cream pastry um, yes the shallow drus exactly yes which which in itself that is like a, a miniature epic you could take that out and just what have that as a yeah that's that has a chaplinesque quality yes, and, yes but it's also a very beautiful little scene because he he if you if you bring a Charlotte Rue to this Peggy, you can have you know she can touch you and you can kiss her and whatever, and and the kids go there and this this young kid he 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 takes all his money and he buys the Charlotte Rue and he sits outside the door and she's taking a bath so she, he has to wait, and then he while waiting he just opens it up and he looks at it and he's of course poor and hungry so he starts to you know the whipped cream, and then it's the choice he has to make. Am I more interested in kissing the girl or um, eating the cake? And uh, it's so beautiful because it's it's about you can't really he can't really decide. But then of course he's still a kid, so he he eats and he's hungry and he loves you know he 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 ha- he can't afford to buy a shallot roux for himself, so he he chooses he chooses to to eat the shallot roux and and then shallot roux and then Peggy comes out and he's just you know <laughs> trying to cover the things up and she's just well get out of here that's very that's a very beautiful moment because it's just also tells a lot of innocence and he's still an innocent person he's still a, a child and that's that makes the things that happens later even more tragic because the kids they're still kids yeah I, I i was shocked watching it again about how interesting this film is how daring this film is in its portrayal of sort of childhood sexuality because you know Noodles is young and and um Deborah, I mean, there's a scene with Deborah when she is supposed to be, I think, 13, 14, and she's yes. uh, you know, you see her uh, naked from behind and scenes that I, you know, wouldn't, you know, it's an old cliche to say they wouldn't be shot today, but yes, they wouldn't be shot today. But also I think there's an interesting thing that we seem to have forget forgotten, which is in the film, which is, you know, kids start to have sexual thoughts you know, long before they are legitimate or, or they're legal, let's say. And this film explores that so that they have relationships with Peggy and they are, and and like children, they're not very good at sex. No, because they're uh, spiritually and, I mean, they're not there yet. Yeah. It's something, you know, they they do, their, their body responds to it, but, uh, and it's also maybe how they think they it should be being guys in in a very hard environment so they kind of play they they test out these roles so or or this is how i supposed to behave but i mean inside they're not ready for it because they're too young and they haven't had the experience and they maybe like 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 noodles he just you know he just wants to kiss deborah which he loves whom he loves and that's that's enough but mm. but the environment and the times are different and he sort of has to show off and say oh i'm gonna give her what she's asking for if she's not careful and it's just this violent misogyny which happened which which is the only expression that these young boys yeah exactly and that's also tragic because he, he will never be able to reach a woman Mm. I mean, really connect with a woman because he 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 can't do it. He can't. He doesn't understand how you do it, and that's that's a very sad part of the story too. Which is something which sort of Leone has running through his career. He's sort of like he's interested in women. That's one of the reasons, uh, you know, he criticizes uh, Italian uh, filmmakers. Is he, he starts off by saying, "Oh, then I can't find a, an Italian screenwriter who's interested in women the way I am," and yet and yet his concept of women is very well of his time and earlier if you like you know it's yeah very... the earlier films are very arch- archaic and very very superficial and uh, almost cartoonish approach to women if you ask me but i mean the, the in once upon a time in the west claudia cardinale is the, maybe the first woman 
character that that Leone really was interested in and put some depth into. And and her character is it's a wonderful piece of work, if you ask me. But I mean, in Once Upon a Time in America, you have Deborah. She's a very determined young girl. She wants to become a dancer. She understands, as the kids, as the as the boys uh, do, that if I will. If I want to get out of here from the ghetto, from the poverty, I, I need to find something I'm good at. And I have to stick with that. And I have to, you know, really get it, everything I got. And for her, it's the dance. And when she dis- she's in love with noodles, but she understands that this guy, he will never, you know, get better. He will always be a bum. So she has to choose to, you know, let him go. And that's a very painful decision and a very hard decision to take. But but she makes that decision. And I think it's it's wonderful because she's a very, very strong character. And uh and and, and she remains strong all through the all through the film. And and so I think that's that's a very interesting uh, female character that Leone told us. In this film, yeah, she seems to be someone who actually stands outside of the, the 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 world of the film as well. That she has gone on and done other things, and she's not. And and there's there's a sense that there could be another film which is entirely centered on her. When we get to the the you know the tragic transition and her and that we're we're going into the 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 De Niro years, if you like, um, and prohibition and and they've become proper proper gangsters. Then it sort of becomes, it starts to become more sort of recognizably a gangster movie. Um, but at the same time, not completely. No, because it's also, I mean, the kid years, they, 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 the power of, of the emotions and the, the childhood, I mean, it, it, it continues through the adult years so i mean it i still feel that uh, sadness in the film and it's also a, a political movie because it talks about the union and uh, the corruption and uh, and all that but it remains i mean the relations the relationship between max and noodles uh, the robert de niro and james woods characters are i mean and deborah and of course his his love to deborah remains the, the heart of the film throughout so it 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 never completely becomes a gangster movie to me. It just plays the genre. And I mean, the thing that Leone made his name with, as you say, you know, he's a success, they'll never forgive you a success. I, I like the gunfights and the the duels. You know, the the long drawn out spaghetti western duel. Here, here, the violence is sort of sudden and bloody and and not particularly glamorous. I mean, you have one gunfight in a sort of what appears to be a feather factory or some sort of cotton mill or something. Now, you kind of expect another, in, a, in, a, in an earlier Leone movie, that would have been like a five-minute, six-minute scene. In this movie, it's kind of over in a minute, and it's and it's an exciting bit of cinema, but it's not like a huge action scene. No, and I mean, the the most... The the most violent scene. I mean, it's the opening when Fat Mogat gets um, beaten up quite badly in the beginning of the film, and then it's the the terrible rape scene with Deborah. But otherwise, the violence is is hard and but it's very it's over like that. It's like it it's not the thing that 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 um, is interested to him. He's not interested in the violence this time as much as maybe earlier, the ritual of killing, uh, because Leone was always not like Sam Peckingpah who, you know, killed people in slow-mo and, and, and whatever, and people were falling and the blood was... For Leone, it was more interested in showing uh, the prologue to death, the dance before death, which you know, is one of his character most characteristic traits. But in, in Once Upon a Time in America, the violence is just, it's really, it's brutal, but it's kind of short. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, maybe a technological thing, you know, once you get the machine guns, it, it becomes a fairly clumsy, straightforward way of just spraying the, the, the scene with a machine gun and Treat, Treat Williams, for instance, gets shot with a machine gun at a certain point. And it's, it's not even a godfather level of sort of glamorous in, inventive murder it's much more uh, industrial talking about the politics i think it's a really interesting point because yeah you have treat williams as this sort of young uh me union worker who's who's uh, initially sort of 
idealistic and then is corrupted. They corrupt him through the uh, by saving his life and sort of protecting him. I, I'm going to run this a little bit through towards the end as well. You also have Max, obviously, and this is spoilers for everybody, becoming the secretary, uh, a, part, a part of the government and, and a corrupt part of the government. But you know, he's done the Michael Corleone thing. He's sort of gone legitimate in some ways, even though that is going to come crashing down. But that's the difference between Noodles and Max. From the beginning, when when Noodles comes out of the prison, uh, Max has already started to work with, with the mob, you know, the, the organization that is also, also, of course, working with the union. And Noodles is very skeptical about that. He He wants, you know... And he's because he still lives in the past in a certain way. He he doesn't he doesn't want to work with the corporation. He doesn't he wants to do stuff by him by himself. The little gang together. He doesn't he don't he don't want to, he doesn't want to have any bosses. And Max is trying to convince him that we have to do this. Uh, and and Noodles kind of says, well, to, you know, they they ask us to get rid of this guy, but tomorrow they will ask me if it's okay if if we get rid of you. And I, for me, that's not okay. It's politics. Uh, just like you know i want this cash and i want us to go out and get it and and everything rest is bullshit and it will just you know split us apart so uh, that's the big difference between them and that's why noodle at the end loses and max you know he climbs the ladder like corleone and he goes all the way to the top and becomes this myth mythological figure secretary bailey who ha who has a, a is a man with a great, lot of power but um, in a certain sense, Max has also lost everything because he lost his best friend too. Yeah, we have this wonderful meeting at the end, but we can talk about more maybe later. But even as as uh, we're going on with the the sort of the rise of the gang and the uh, and the uh, the other scenes, there is, there is a scene a, a character who's who's introduced who is sort of an extension, if you like, of this idea of the connection between sex and violence which is Tuesday Weld's character, uh, who initially works at a bank that the um, the, the gang is is going to hold up, or, or a diamond. Di they're, they're stealing the diamonds from a, a, a sort of... Now, I have real problems with this scene, and I think most people uh, watching it today might find this scene um, d difficult to watch because essentially it's uh, a setup, Noodles rapes, the Tuesday Weld character, but there is a sense that 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 is part of the setup. Although you know, it's 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 extremely ambivalent, let's to say the least. Yeah, and it's very unpleasant, and uh, and uh, maybe one of the weakest uh, parts in the film because it's 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 never kind of explained and uh, he plays with that that sh that um, Tuesday Wells character has this masochistic masochistic uh, kind of um, trait character trait but it's it's it remains uh, kind of on the sup on on the superficial it's very superficially told the the, the whole thing but she, he she becomes then part of the gang so to speak because she later becomes max girlfriend so in that sense i think what he's trying to say is that she is also she's trying to belong to do something to get a chance in life she has to adjust to these brute men and and, and that's what she does so she plays this role but it's very it's a very problematic and terrible <laughs> terrible scene really i think the problem with it is not only in and of itself which you've expressed very well but also kind of what it then does to the rape scene in terms of deborah yeah because he he leon has done this before in mm. uh, ducky soccer there's also a scene where girl is is about or a woman is about being abused by by this uh what do you call it um Band, uh, bandit i guess bandits yeah. and uh and for leon it becomes almost a gag because yeah. and and so this is this is a, a one thing that re, that remains one of the bad habits he had that remains in one of the scenes in once upon a time in america 
since he still seems to to think it's funny or interesting to put it that way, which you don't really get a psychological ex- explanation about. So it, it it doesn't it doesn't hook. It does it, it isn't for real, if you ask mm-hmm. me. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. That's that's something uh, that sticks out today because it feels very old and uh, and vulgar and uh, kind of old old macho kind of thing to do. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It feels like a male fantasy rather. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. There's a sort of other moment of fantasy which is much more benign, which is the the mixing up of the babies, which almost yeah. has. Which also, this one of the things I noticed this time around was the mixing up of the babies is also a sort of echo of the mixing up of the of the tagging of the bodies at the very beginning. So it it sort of weirdly prefigures the death of the the gang. And and they're all tagged with their names and yeah exactly you're right I never thought about that yeah one of them is mistagged so the idea that your tag and your is at the very beginning is also at the very end yeah that's interesting and it's also I mean about somebody is very fortunate when they are born and somebody is not so I mean it's just who cares <laughs> it's it's a very funny and horrifying scene at the same time played out with that wonderful operatic music and yeah it's a funny scene and Danny Aiello as well as one of it's the amazing. he's he's a sort <laughs> of he's a he's a character from you know Italian comic opera almost yeah definitely that's commedia dell'arte there for you <laughs> exactly yeah exactly and that's what i think the whole tenor of the movie is really interesting because leone makes you know, never sets a single of his movies in Italy. He makes all his no. movies. Yeah, that's very interesting. Based in the but US. They're very Italian. But they're very, they're Italian. very Italian. I mean, if if somebody said, you know, what's your favorite Italian movie? And you say Once Upon a Time in America. It's like, yeah, but what's your favorite Italian movie? But it is a very Italian movie. Yeah. There's no way. Yeah, yeah. And But it's also, I mean, it's, as we talked about, it's very melancholic. It's very sad, but it's also very playful and, and it's fun, funny. And when they're young, when they do all these dangerous, stupid things, when they, you know, there's a lot of uh, very funny moments in the film, which I think is also, you know, memories from the childhood of Sergio Leone when, when his gang ran around Trastevere and just made <laughs> stupid things. It has both, and that's that, that's very Italian, I think. Think of him reading reading on the toilet as well. He's yeah. reading Martin Eden, the Jack London. Fantastic. Novel, you know, which uh, of course was made into a film quite recently. Uh, in yeah, yeah, no, Italian, yeah, it was quite good. Yeah, it was one of the with Luca Marinelli again, you know. <laughs> so, uh, as we get, let's let's go on to the, the later scenes. Uh, let's start with the scene with Deborah, which of course is filmed famously in Venice on the Lido, uh, the hotel and the dinner. And he, he takes yeah. her out for this day and he does everything he can think of to sort of impress her but it it doesn't work and it's not and and it he destroys any hope of happiness that he might have had with her in a rape which whenever i re-watch this film i always think it's over before it's over it's, it's sort of like yeah, yeah. A... It's, it just continues that's horrifying and you, it's it's a horrifying scene uh, and and it's it's not very explicit it's in the way that you see a lot of things you, you just see her face and you know his face and uh, hear her scream and you know the, her dress and uh, and and it's just goes on and on and on and it's it's a horrifying scene it's like noodles killing everything he loves and killing himself. It's like he wants to destroy every possibility of redemption for himself, making that decision. Elizabeth McGovern, I read in an interview, said it was a very hard scene to shoot, obviously. It's it's um, it's the hardest scene to watch in, in the whole movie. I think in the extended version, there's there's a really interesting context here in that you they flesh out the role of the chauffeur, who of course is played yeah. by the, the film's producer. Oh, no, no. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, which is crazy. But there's this conversation where they're basically talking about uh, the Jews in Germany and and what what's happening in Germany. And so you have this idea, which, which I think without that scene, the Jewishness feels much more like furniture and, and ritual and costume. But with that scene, it really contextualizes. Yeah, it's the first time in when they are adults that mm-hmm. they 
that the Jewishness feels, you know, real. When they're kids, I, I feel that the Jewishness is there all the time with the Pesach and the talk about the rabbi and everything. And the but here it's it's for real. Yeah, but but after that, this after this uh, has happened, uh, I mean, noodles is I mean, he's condemned for life. He's just, you know, crashed down into Dante's inferno, and he will he will never get get out of it again, and he will live with it for the rest of his life. And so she, I mean, of course, she's also marked for it for life. It's a horrible. I mean, it's it's really a horrible moment. And when he he sort of turns up again, wave her goodbye. Well, not even wave a goodbye when he t- turns up again when she's old and she's yeah, yeah, pl- yeah. and she's playing Cleopatra, yeah. And and there's that amazing scene where she's taking off this makeup of her looking young and and she's obviously Elizabeth McGovern who's young wearing makeup looking old. So there's a, a, a that's amazing, a really interesting moment, very daring moment for Leone to do again that teasing and playing with you, yes. But, that scene again, when I rewatched it, it sort of plays differently. It feels different. It feels she's scared of him still. She's looking at her, she's looking at her rapist. And yeah, of course. He has no there's he has all this, oh, I'm glad you went and you were an actress, you're very good. And she's like, I don't really care about your opinion. You know, I don't No, really... no, and here he is a coward because he's trying to, you know, make her say that things are okay now, or I, I've forgiven you, or whatever he wants her to say. And of course, she hasn't, because you can't forgive us a thing like that. So so he is kind of fishing for sympathy there when there's no sympathy to be had. And then they have to continue to talk about the reason why he's there. Uh, and he doesn't get that satisfaction or or the redemption he may have, you know, wanted to have. Uh, and that's, that's, um, yeah, that's a very true moment. Yeah. And of course that, that conversation finishes with him seeing who we understand is Max's son, uh, but is played by the actor who played Max as a, as a kid. And so, you know, there's this, again, a very strange playing with the cinematic form that you don't go, oh, that's a family resemblance. You say, hey, wait a minute, isn't that the guy from earlier that we you know, we've just seen? Yeah, well, that's in the, in the story, it's like noodles are trying to put the pieces together, but there's one piece missing. Who is orchestrating me getting back and do all these things and has called me to this party and... Um, and and the and the ultimate piece is like when he sees the he understands that during the conversation with Deborah that she has married or he's living with Senator Bailey whoever he is and when he opens the door uh, and sees like the same actor that's played Max as a kid he understands that yeah it's 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 Max who is you know has orchestrated all this who has called him back to you know whatever it is and that's a very <laughs> striking moment I think now I've got a theory about and so we're right on to the end of the this revelation and i have a theory about this because i always thought that this was a, a flaw in the plot but i think on re-watching it and reconsidering it and thinking about it i don't think it's a flaw anymore i'll i'll so I'll, I'll lay it out and see what see what you think think of this so my my theory of the flaw is when he confronts secretary bailey slash max max is basically saying you know you you have to kill me because you deserve it and because i'm gonna go in they're gonna kill me anyway and i'd i'd rather give you this opportunity of revenge i'd rather you killed me than than the my old allies now enemies do and he says i've seen you in the papers he he has this thing where this guy's famous this guy is famous on a national level he's been in buffalo for 35 years he's not been in china so he's been seeing the newspapers he's seen max's photograph there's no way he could not know that max and senator bailey are the same person, right? I've always thought that this was a flaw in the movie, that it just, you know, it it had to be this revelation. But when he says to Max, um, I don't... When Senator Bailey... He refuses to recognise Senator Bailey as Max. He says, I had a friend once. That means that he always knew that even... even, not he, He didn't necessarily always know, like, from the very... You know, of course, he thought he'd killed his friend when he gets on the train. But at some point during those 35 years, he's opened a newspaper up and gone, wait a minute, that's the guy who I thought was dead. And so it, it, it 
and he's been in denial. So even when he gets the revelation at the end and he says, I still don't know what you're talking about, that denial began earlier. That's that's my theory. Uh, what, what do you think? Yeah, it, you might be right. I, I read different kind of uh, exp- explanations for that hole in the plot, so to speak. And one is that maybe it isn't so like maybe Noodles, the loser he is and the, and the wound that he got 35 years earlier, that maybe he hasn't been reading the papers or been interested in politics in New York, living in Buffalo. So he hasn't really, he doesn't know, mm. or at least not as much as you said that he actually seen the pic- the picture in the in the newspaper uh maybe that could be a possibility because at least i mean it it's not like it's not like today where it's this is 1968 right so i mean it's it it could be it might be even later you know i don't just... no i think it's 68 but because they talk about something on television at a certain point so i think it's right. uh, 60 and and then when he comes back it's they play yesterday uh, and yes. that's that song came out in 1968 i think so i think it's supposed to be 1968 i i just remember the frisbees <laughs> I, yes. I thought oh is that frisbee yeah, that's is very that odd because did i have some frisbees in 1968 that's very <laughs> rare <laughs> the love painting on the railway that that replaces the Coney Island painting looks a little bit later as well. I, I always... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's a very powerful, powerful scene anyway because Max is the one who's do, who does all the talking. You know, I I took your girl, I took your money, uh, and and you know the, they're gonna get me now, and uh, the truth will be out, and they're gonna kill me anyway. And I called you back. Uh, to kill me because you are the only one I can take it from and I respect you. And uh, he pulls out the old watch that they had when they were kids. And, you know, time is now 8.06 and I got nothing to lose. And and Noodles just in awe listened to all this. And and, and as you said, he just said, well, I have a a story also, but it's much more simpler than yours. I, I had a friend, but he died because he wanted that way. Uh, it it ended bad for him. It ended bad for me too. So mm-hmm. I hope the investigation will turn out in, well. And then he just want to leave. Uh, and I mean, so he he kind of regains his dignity at the end because he doesn't want any part of this. And Max has you know he won he has won the world, but he's lost his soul. So he's also condemned and alone, as is Noodles, who lost his friend and who like will never get the redemption for the thing he did with, for, uh, with Deborah. The girl he loved. So I mean, it's 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 two losers who say good say goodbye to each other. But at at least Noodles has his own destiny in his hands in a certain way. So that that's a very powerful scene. And does Max sort of throw himself into the the garbage truck at the end? Or yeah, that's is, the, also a big the... discussion because I, as you know, Leone took. It's not James Woods who's walking behind a garbage truck. It's it's a it's an actor who looks like James Woods because Leone wanted it to be like yeah it's James Woods or or is it? It's like Hoffa. He 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 disappeared. Jimmy Hoffa disappeared. Nobody knows where he is. He may be there. He may be here. The only thing you know about him is he will not turn up for supper, as James Woods put it. So it's a part of the mystery. And and, and this leads us, of course, up to uh, the theory that uh, some of us has, uh, have had all the time, uh, that, that everything that happens after 1933 are actually fantasies in, a, in an opium, when, when noodles smoke opium after, you know, calling the police, uh, betraying his friends and watching them die. So everything is just like this circle movement of he's just you know it's just hallucinations and is that your theory is that one you you subscribe to maybe there's a lot of question marks that remains but i saw this i saw this lecture that Sergio Leone had in 1984 in the film school in bologna because the film he had just made a film and the students had had seen this uh, had seen the film and in every interview i watched with or read by leone he is very ambiguous about the ending he 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 never says what you want him to say because it yeah maybe or maybe it's not but here is very he's very clear that he argued even with the screenwriters that they even the screenwriters think that everything has happened for real but they don't know that everything is just 
in the mind of this opium addict noodles when he is under the influence of opium. He just hallucinates about what happens after all this, you know, what he'd done, you know, that he Max will betray him and uh, Deborah will marry him and yeah, everything. How do you explain uh, yesterday, 1968? How do you explain uh, the cars of the... It's, you know, it's hard to explain, but but in a certain sense, it makes sense because it's it's also, I mean, once upon a time in, in America, it's also, it's, it's a very complicated, layered, profound story about time and lost time and lost friendship and lost love and lost dreams. But it's, as always, Sergio Leone said, it's also a film about cinema. It's a f- film about a certain way of making cinema, a certain way of, you know, conceiving cinema. And so it's mythology. And in, in that sense, it makes sense to me that maybe this is just happening in Noodle's head. And when we see that last shot, that amazing sort of gut punch of a last shot of him looking straight at the camera, but there's there's a screen in front of him. He's 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 we're seeing him through a screen, and that's like almost like a visual. It's like a it's like a gauzy screen uh, uh, that's that is between us and noodles, um, and it, you know you focused in so you can see him through the fabric. Yeah, fab exactly. But but he made one. He he made the exactly same shot in Once Upon a Time in the West. There's a certain point where Claudia Cardinale lies lies on the bed at the end of the film, and it, we see her through this kind of what do you call it fabric? Yeah, from above and. And it's the kind of the same kind of shot. Yeah, but Noodle smiles, and and everybody, it, it's a very enigmatic smile at the end. What does it mean? You know, it's just the opium kicking in, or what is it? He, at for a moment, he is free and he is happy, and he is you know kind of beaten into oblivion. I don't know. But uh, it's it's a very ambiguous ending. And I mean, aside from De Niro doing a, a, an amazing performance, which I think this is this is up there as one of his best roles. One of his best, definitely. And you've definitely got James Woods' his best role yeah, by, yeah. by a long, long stretch. Yeah, definitely. And it's he's he, he's great in Once Upon a Time in America, definitely. And then you have the oh, fun, powerful music by Morricone too throughout the film that really enhances and uh, i mean it's it's it makes it's part of the story it's, it's it's definitely his music and uh as you know the music was already written and recorded in you know very basic versions and was played on set to to you know create a certain spiritual feeling and uh, i know robert de niro was uh, didn't like it at the beginning because then they couldn't you know, take the sound, the the dialogue on set. They had to do it in the studio later, but then it was so powerful for him. So he he, he liked it. At the end, he thought it was a great thing to do. And, and I think that also makes his acting so profound in this film. Mm-hmm. And it, it's slow and it's very sad and it's very melancholic. And I mean, it's plays in with the music. And you can't you can't think once about think one thing uh, about uh, one once upon a time in America taking away the music of Morricone. Then this, I mean, it's <laughs> every image will have another meaning. The weird choice as well, which is uh, goes with all these amazing choices in this film of of having one of the characters play the panpipes. So that... I, I talked to Morricone once. I made an interview with him like eight years ago, and we talked about once upon a time in America. And I told him how much that film meant to me and he listened very patiently and I thought well it's interesting for him to hear that uh, that I love this film so much and I can explain it to him and but then I understood that he was so patient because he knew how important it was for me to tell him about it so he was very (laughs) (laughs) but anyway uh, the thing is that I think it's the I feel compassion for noodles because I think it's the music that redeems him in every scene where you have noodles when he's a young kid and also but also at the end or after the terrible scene with with Deborah you have this music and the music redeems him because in a certain sense because it makes him a human being and if it wasn't for the music he would be a monster Mm. So I think it gives a depth to the character that's that's quite amazing, and uh, that otherwise I think we it would have been much much difficult, more difficult to 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 I mean understand noodles and the other characters as well. 
So, and he also said that that music is music in a movie is everything that you the characters can't say and you can't see. So, in that sense, this is the perfect the perfect um, fusion between image and and sound. Yeah, because Noodles is is completely inarticulate, isn't he? I mean, it, yeah, yeah, he can't articulate articulate any feeling whatsoever. Mm. He, he's 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 lost in himself. Mm. So the music does it for him so we can understand how he feels and that's that's quite an amazing uh, achievement really i'm just in awe of the fact that you met morricone as well that's yeah amazing. yeah me too i can't believe it <laughs> i still can't believe it <laughs> what a dream what a dream to meet that man i've i've managed to sort of be at one remove from him i've i had, oh, yeah i had some friends who are musicians and they wrote a, uh they they play accordions and they do yeah. They transcribed back into accordion music and uh they sent him a cd of their work and he phoned them up and said are you is that definitely two accordions because i can hear other notes being played there i'm are you sure are you overdubbing stuff or and yeah. he was like no 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 that's live live recording and he was like okay okay i'm gonna send you something so they he sent them a score yeah that he wrote especially for two accordions and they played it and recorded it and sent it back to him and he was like okay thank you and i'd never heard from him again but it was just it was just like his musical curiosity was like could could i do something else with this or but it was purely you know a, an intellectual exercise it wasn't like i'm going to commercially do something with this it was just like i i want to hear what this sounds like Fantastic. But do, do, do you know the story about, about the, the, the theme for Deborah? Deborah's no. theme in, oh. in the movie? Because it, it's, I mean, it's, it feels so perfect. Uh, it's like, it's, I mean, it, it, for me, it's like, it's noodles, it's Deborah, it's, the, there are all those these images and the music was made to those images. Leona had written Deborah's theme for Deborah, Deborah's theme a couple of years earlier for a film he was making with Seferelli. I think mm -hmm. it was called a love story, and he had his contract that he was making, you know, all the music, and he he wrote Deborah's theme, and Seferelli was, you know, happy about it, and then they were recording it in 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 Los Angeles, and then suddenly in the studio, Seferelli says, "Well, I want this also this song with Lionel Richie uh, in in the movie because he's very popular now," and Leonis just, you know, he freaked out. I. I if I do the music, I do the music. You can't right. put, you know, this is not the deal. Yeah, but no. I want Lionel Richie. Well, then you can fuck off. <laughs> uh, so he paid back Seferelli every, every dollar he got. And he took that song and he put it in his, uh, you know, in his door for a couple of years. And then he thought, well, this is perfect to, to put in uh, Leone's film. And Leone didn't know it until after the premiere of the movie. And then Morricone told him, you know, Deborah's theme. I I I I wrote it for another director. Uh, for for who? It, um, it, it, Seferelli. Oh, che testa di cazzo! <laughs> <laughs> and they just laughed. What a stupid jerk! He didn't want you know Deborah's theme. And then Leone asked him, "Do you have any other you know rejected you know parts or music that <laughs> you know stupid directors didn't want? Please send them to me." <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's an amazing story. It is. It is brilliant. I, I, it reminds me. There's a, a story of Elio Petri, the music from Investigation of a Citizen Above yeah. Suspicion, which. Uh, uh, Morricone does, and which we talk about in a in a previous episode, comes from a different film. And Elio Petri saw the saw him testing the the music, or saw saw the footage before the film was released, and said, "No, no, I want I want that music." And uh, um, there was some arguments within the Italian film industry in order to get that. But now you see it where it is, and you think that that's exactly where it belongs. You yeah, know? exactly. Can't imagine <laughs> it anywhere else. He chose Lion Luricio over. Deborah's theme. So yeah. I mean, they, it says it all. That says a lot about Franco Zeffirelli. Not a filmmaker. <laughs> yes, yes. Not a filmmaker. I'm usually definitely does. But I, I just think, I just think that I mean, I think Sergio Leone. Now, the last decade, maybe the things has changed, but he has been underrated, especially in Italy, because they're so. They're so obsessed with Antonioni and, uh, of course, Fellini, whom I love. I, I, li I love Antonioni too. But, I mean, the way it's it's just as difficult to tell a story visually 
because he's powerful that uh, Leone does tend to make one of Antonioni's films. Uh, so I always felt that he has been he, he he's been underrated in, in in Italian cinema. I think there are definitely these directors. Rossi would be another one for me who I feel hasn't been given the um the the acclaim that they deserve. Mario Bava, I think, yes. is, is another yeah, yeah. one who it, it tends to be people who've worked in genres that aren't necessarily considered high art, you know. Yeah, and it's like Tarantino says in the Sergio Leone documentary that Sergio Leone is the first modern filmmaker. You know, because he he created the modern anti-hero that is very cool, that is very, you know, who has his own agenda and uh, doesn't say so much. But when he talks, it's like, you know, a bullet. Yes. In yeah. your head. So it's, uh, and it's also visually, he's an artist. I mean, he, he borrowed from the Kiriko. He knew all about art. Uh, he was meticulous about, you know, every little detail. Uh, I have a book about how we made Once Upon a Time in America, and it was like 10,000 of photographs that he wanted to recreate exactly as they were. So, I mean, visually, he is the greatest director I know of. Definitely. Absolutely, absolutely. I th- mm-hmm. I th- rewatching the film, I the the just some of the shots right at the very yeah. beginning and the just... transition between time and yeah. uh, it's it's just amazing. Absolutely, totally agree. Completely seamless, it seems. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so here's to you, Sergio. Uh, absolutely, <laughs> bravissimo, Sergio. Bravissimo. <laughs> Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you, John. Great talking to you. Arrivederci, ragazzi. Ci vediamo in un prossimo film. Lo speriamo.